3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nations and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 8.55am with me, M, And Katya. And it's, today is the 6th of December, and it's right on 3 past 7 in the morning. And it looks like it's going to be a hot one today. I know, which is great, because I have the day off later oh, in the day. So excellent. I'm going to go to the pool, maybe. And also it's summer. I Happy know. summer to all listeners. Happy summer. I know, it's, it's like the first week of December. It's officially here. And only, like, I realise it's only like less than three weeks till Christmas. Yes. Which is quite wild. I don't I know. know how we got there. I know. And that also means that you and I will probably be taking a little break over Christmas as well for yeah. summer programming. Yes, yes. I think so. We need to talk about that. Yes, we do need to talk about it. Well, I'm going to be taking at least two weeks. Great. Off. <laughs> I think I should too. Surprise, yeah. Em. <laughs> um, what do we have on the show this morning? Yeah, so this morning um, we have we actually have some interviews I'm really excited about mm. today. I think you've got the first interview coming up at 7.30. I do. So I'm going to be speaking with Professor Adrian Evans from Monash University and we're going to be talking about lawyers' ethics in light of, I mean, what's been all over the news this week, mm. which is um, the case of Informer 3838, but we're going to be looking at it from a pers- the perspective of lawyers' ethics and duties to the court. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, and we'll also give a bit of an overview, I guess, about what's been going on as well to yes. update listeners who haven't been following this massive, massive breaking yes. story. Yeah. And then at 8 o'clock, we're going to be chatting with um, Dr. Christine from Médecins Sans Frontières um, about the report that MSF, otherwise known as Doctors Without Borders, um, released this week called Indefinite Despair, which is looking at data that they collected over the eight months that they were, um, 11 months sorry, that they were working on um, Nauru providing psychological and um, mental health treatment for both you know, Nauru and folk and also asylum seeker and refugee people. Um, and it's a incredibly, you know, it's an it's a sh- absolutely powerful and devastating indictment um, on the Australian government and the quality of mental health care that um, they're able to provide. So that'll be, yeah, a really important conversation, I think. And then at quarter past eight, we're going to be chatting with uh, Jenny Nixon from First Nations Media, because two weeks ago there was a really amazing conference, the Converge conference that happened in Sydney, um, which was focused on, on um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media. And there was also an inaugural um, First Nations Media Awards night and also the launch of Indigitube, which is... Um, what re- is that? Uh, well, we're going to be talking with Jenny about it later, okay. so stay tuned. Surprise. <laughs> it sounds very... Interesting. Yeah. Mm. And then also today, yeah, I've got some really great tracks that I want to play for you. And in the sort of gaps between all our RAD interviews, I also just want to share a bit about, um, you know, some of the work that um, RISE has been doing recently and some of the, yeah, the campaigns and bills that they've been supporting. But impact. So we're going to first go to a community service announcement and then we're going to be listening to a song. In the summer I went swimming in the summer, Yay, the summer. I was drowned, but I held my 
Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15 a bottle. And they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Call the station between 9 to 5 on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Then you can drop into our Fitzroy studios to collect before the 21st of December. Small Patch Wine Store is a 3CR supporter. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about squatting movements from around the world today. And On the Fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. tuned in to 3CR Thursday Breakfast 8.55am. Just before we were listening to uh, the new single Happy by Tando and Tando's actually, she's performing around the country doing her um, I guess yeah, her, her, her launch of the single she's performing at the Gasso this Saturday and she, I, I mean I know we always say like one to watch whenever but she is really amazing. She's based here in Nam um, and actually I was just reading about the song just then, Happy, and it was saying that it's a letter to my uncon- her unconscious self from the perspective of her anxiety. So I also thought that was quite an appropriate song for us to choose this morning because we were just saying how we both felt quite anxious coming yeah, into the studio. I know, we were just speaking with our coordinator and we're all having <laughs> an anxious morning, all feeling a bit nervous. Yeah, I had bad dreams about radio for like the first time almost ever. I know, and I got up super early and got here at 6am to mm. prepare because I felt just nervous and underprepared. So what's going on with the 6th of December? I don't know. National but day of getting up weird. and feeling <laughs> Wrong side of the bed. Um, but we're here. Yes, <laughs> and we we're are. on air. And you're fun. with us, yes. dear listeners. Um, so now we thought we would... Um, yeah, I guess maybe talk a bit about uh, some of the campaigning that RISE um, has been doing recently. In particular, I wanted to share with you about the Save Hakeem um, campaign, which is really important um, to get on board. So just to give you some backstory, um, I might 
Yeah, I might start by actually just reading out um, RISE's media release. And for those who don't know, RISE is a collective of refugees, survivors and ex-detainees. And it's the first um, like refugee and asylum-run organisation that's entirely run and governed by refugees, asylum seekers and ex-detainees. Um, so they put out this um, media release two days ago now, on Tuesday, um, called Hashtag Save Hakeem Urgent Action Call Stop Deportation to Bahrain of Australian Refugee Hakeem El Arabi in Thailand. So Hakeem El Arabi has been recognised as a refugee and granted permanent protection by the Australian government. Last week, while he was in Thailand, he was taken by the Thai authorities to an immigration detention centre and told he will not be sent back to Australia. The Thai authorities informed him that due to an Interpol red notice, he would be deported to Bahrain instead. Today, on Tuesday, there were reports in the media that the Interpol red notice has been lifted, yet there is no clear sign of guaranteed safety and protection for Hakim Al-Arabi by Australian and Thai state authorities or international authorities in the UN or ICRC with a protection mandate. Hakim has said, I'm a refugee in Australia. I'm scared of the Bahraini government. They will kill me. I don't know what's going to happen there. My life will end if I go to Bahrain. Hakim, yes, that's from Hakim Al-Arabi, who's been tamed into Thailand. This is a critical case as it sets a further precedent of abuse and torture across the real world and makes refugees more insecure about travelling outside Australia. It violates the right to freedom of movement, life, safety and protection. RISE has emailed UNHCR Thailand, UNCAT, the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network, and the RISE team has contacted UNHCR in Thailand by telephone. RISE urgently requests all supporters to contact Thai and Australian authorities and international agencies, which are listed on their website, and ask them to intervene and stop the deportation of Hakim Al-Arabi in danger and to provide him with proper support and safeguards for safe travel back to Australia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this, um, so there's been a lot about this on Twitter, um, a lot of call for action. Um, I guess just some other, yeah, you know, useful details, I guess, to fill in is, you know, that Hakim has actually travelled outside Australia before. He was granted refugee status in 2017 um, and he's travelled internationally before. But then when he got, he was on holiday with his partner in Thailand um, and at the airport he was told that he had an Interpol red notice against him and that was the first that he'd heard of it. Um, and he's been detained um, ever since then. Mm-hmm. And then even though the Interpol red notice has been lifted, he's still on remand and bail's been denied. Um, so supporters, um, even though there's no clear, there hasn't been a clear reason given for why this red notice was issued against him, supporters do suspect that this red notice may have been issued after he spoke to media in 2016, alleging torture and abuse at the hands of um, Bahraini authorities, because um, he has been, you know, he's done really amazing work in speaking out against um, his experiences. And, yeah, I guess there's strong reason to suspect that that's a large part of the reason why um, he has been yeah, detained in Thailand and threatened with um, deportation back to Thailand, um, back to Bahrain, sorry. And has the Australian government come out and said anything yet? Um, to the best of my knowledge, no, but we can also check up and um, inform this later, later for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but actually, on to ask, I'm not sure, I didn't actually know much about Interpol red notices um, before 
I was reading about what was going on. Do you know much about Interpol? No, I don't know much about Interpol red notices. So maybe that's another thing we can. Yeah, or I can just share quickly now. Yeah. yeah. So Interpol, I again, it's how it's how you can just like not know about these things really. Mm-hmm. But Interpol is like the the world's largest policing organization, and it's one of the like largest um, international organizations after the UN. It's you know massive and it's got about 190 member um, uh, member countries around the world. And so they don't actually have um, law enforcement officers per se. They're not authorised to make arrests, but rather one of the key functions is the circulator of these so-called like wanted person alerts, um, known as red notices or diffusions, um, which then countries can use to seek a person's arrest um, with a view to being extradited. So these red notices show up on police databases all over the world um, and essentially like ask for them to be arrested. Um, and then it's up to the like once those notices have been disseminated, it's up to the countries themselves to decide how they will respond to that information. But many countries will just automatically arrest someone who has an alert against them, um, often with very little by way of legal process. And so, with a red notice, the person doesn't necessarily need to be identified um, by the. So, for instance, in this case, by the Australian government. Hakim wouldn't have needed to be notified by the Australian no. government. Yeah, so he often people don't know at all okay. um, until the point at which they're actually arrested on the basis of a red notice that they have one out against them. Yeah. Um, it's horrible. Yeah, mm. and so um, th- there's been quite a lot of criticism of, I mean, of Interpol broadly, um, but of this system of red notices. Um, so, for example, the human rights organisation Fair Trials has been campaigning for a while um, to try to get you know, at minimum reviews of how these red notices are being issued. Um, so red notices, I'm sorry, Fair Trials is, uh, I'm pretty sure they're a legal charity that sort of specialises in um, trying to campaign for fair criminal proceedings. But they've come out and said in response to um, the detention of Hakim in Thailand that they believe that the this system, this Interpol system, particularly the international wanted person alert system, is being abused by countries around the world in order to persecute refugees, journalists and peaceful political demonstrators at huge personal cost to these individuals. Which doesn't sound surprising. No, not in the slightest. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, what's important to remember is, you know, this in, in the context of essentially like a massive policing body um, which has quite little transparency um, and so absolutely can be you know, manipulated and used to um, I mean, stifle both freedom of movement and freedom of speech um, around the world and that disproportionately impacts um, you know, people who are already being um, oppressed in other ways and who are uh, you know, yeah, speaking out against what they're experiencing. Mm. And so is there, there's a currently an online petition or has yeah there's a moment petition there's also a call from rise to you know get on the phone and call both australian and um you know thai and international authorities to show that you don't support um what's happening and you demand that hakeem be brought back to australia asap um you can find out more if you just look up hashtag save hakeem on twitter or look on the rights website yeah Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, 
We'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform? and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. You're tuned into 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Just then we listened to this really great track um, by Soli Tsema and it's a mashup that she did of Booed Up and My Boo, so like essentially a cover of um, LMI and, and Asha um, and it featured Cam Noble. And so Soli Tsema is another really great num, great num based, um, you know, young emerging um, artist whose work I think is really great. And she's done, there's quite a lot of mashups that she's done on YouTube that um, are really worth checking out. And she's also starting to get playing more gigs around town. So she's definitely one to keep her, your eye out for. So it was solely to Thema. That was a really beautiful track. Yeah, it was really, really, nice. really great. I really yeah. enjoy it. Um, and I guess, yeah, last night when I was sort of thinking about tunes to play for today, you know, we've spoken before about how on Thursday breakfast we really want to prioritise the work of, you know, NAM-based folk, um, and particularly, you know, Australia-wide, but specifically here um, in NAM, and particularly, you know, um, artists of colour and First Nations artists. And so there's just so many... Incre- and it just whenever I sort of go on a little research trip to find music for, for 3 hour Thursday breakfast, I'm always, you know, so in awe of how much incredible, um, you know, music is coming out of um, this place at the moment. It's amazing. There's so much. And I'm the same, so I really started looking more into local, locally-based artists and particularly First Nations artists when I started on 3CR because I was like, I think that's what we should be prioritising. And there is so much, and I felt like it was just really amazing, but also like, wow, I have been so ignorant of this mm. for so long with such a kind of global perspective on what everyone else is doing overseas and not looking right here. Yeah. yeah. And so in a couple of minutes, we're going to be going into an interview with um, Adrian Evans. But, Katia, I was wondering before then, would you be able to give us a bit of an overview of um, yeah, of the story that you're going to be discussing with, with Adrian? Yes. So it's been all over the news this week, and listeners may have already been reading online um, or listening on other wonderful news radio, community radios, uh, stations. But So this week it was revealed that um, a former barrister now, no longer a lawyer, but a lawyer had been uh, 
informing on clients um, to Victoria Police. So it's a it was a huge thing that's come out. Daniel Andrews has called for a royal commission into the police's conduct and what has been called a most a gross misconduct towards their treatment of in uh, who's called Informer three eight three eight. So it's been it's incredible. Like I am. Th- texted me on I think Monday and my mind was blown because also as a as a lawyer myself I was like oh my god this is incredible but also in terms of what this means for the way that um, many ranks of the Victoria Police were in on this um, and the way that it was uh, first leaked earlier on and then there was um, an IBAC investigation um, and there were efforts to keep, this is over the last few years, so the informer was engaged with police from 2004 and was informing on clients in what's known as Melbourne's notorious gangland war. Um, so throughout 2004 onwards, and I think I'm not quite sure of the year that they stopped, but I know that the lawyer then had health problems that preventing them from going on, but for a few, quite a few years um, providing information to police about um, Mockbell, um, Williams, all kinds of people that were involved in um, those gangland wars. So there's been heaps and heaps of criticism mm. um, about Victoria Police's role in this, um, particularly the, the commissioner at the time, Simon Overland, um, and the fact that there was there is a duty of, from the Victoria Police to keep informants safe, but also that Victoria Police should be aware of um, the duties that lawyers have as police and lawyers are all part of the same justice system. So there should be an awareness of, um, I guess, both parties' duties to the court and clients and also Victoria Police's duty to keep informants safe and to recognise when there's a risk to their life. So on Monday, a high court case or a high court order was delivered where they discussed this case and the judges said that there was a real, I think they said an almost that there's a risk to the lawyer's life that's almost, sorry, I'm just having a look. So the High Court stated that the risk of death to lawyer X was, quote, almost certain. So this is huge. Um, it's really scary as well to know that this person's life is now gravely under threat. And if we look at people like Carl Williams who were hit in prison when they were under protection for informing on other people in that gangland war, it's quite a scary thing. So it's really shocked, I think, everybody. Um, and it, I guess from our perspective, we were wanting to look at also the kind of police accountability around this today, but um, unfortunately we couldn't get anyone on to, to speak about it, so we're going to be speaking about lawyers' ethics today instead. Yeah, and maybe we'll have a bit of a chat um, after our interview with Adrian as well around the, you know, the I guess this really highlights the vital importance of uh, an independent investigative body um, to look into police complaints and misconduct because, you know, importantly this isn't just like a one-off example of policing conduct. It also sort of shows that... Um, that that is incredibly embedded within the system. You know, this goes to the highest ranks of Victoria Police. Um, and so there's a really, this is a really, you know, important time to be calling for greater police accountability. But we might get to that later. Yes. We'll go to a community service announcement and then we'll be back with Adrian Evans. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. 
To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. So Em and I just introduced the topic of what's been happening in the media this week around uh, Informer 3838 um, and their um role in informing to Victoria Police about uh, notorious gangland figures. Uh, So on the line now we have um, Professor Adrian Evans who teaches at Melbourne University in legal systems, legal ethics and clinical case supervision. Adrian has published on law students and lawyers values and best practice ethics for lawyers and law firms. Welcome Adrian. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's um, great to be with you. I'm, I just need to correct you right at the start. I work for Monash, not Melbourne Uni. Oh, did I say Melbourne? <laughs> oh, sorry, I meant Monash. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, yep. Thanks for coming on this morning, Adrian. So we're going to be talking about lawyers' ethics in light of what's been happening this week. So we'll jump straight into it. Uh, in a letter that was um, published in or released in 2015, the lawyer who's at the moment called Lawyer um, Lawyer X wrote to the Assistant Police Commissioner and discussed the reasons why um, they were decided to become an informant. Um, So before we sort of get into um, what that lawyer spoke about, can you give a quick overview of what are the fundamental duties and responsibilities lawyers have to court and clients? Okay, sure. Well, the legal system works on the basis that there's three main players who can be trusted to do the right thing. The first uh, player, if you like, is the court, which means the judges. They have to be independent and impartial and trusted to be so. The second um, group of people that have to be trusted are the police or prosecutors who bring uh, the cases before the judges. They have to be trusted to be impartial as well. And the third group, and the and the uh, obviously the focus of this current scandal, is the lawyer. Uh, lawyers need to be trusted by their client because otherwise the client is not going to give them complete information. If you don't have complete information, you can't do the job. For another reason as well, uh, lawyers have to be completely impartial because they've got to balance what the client's interests are against the interests of justice. So it's not a straightforward role. You know, like a doctor, for example, has to do one thing only, and that's to ensure that healing occurs if if that's possible. They only have one duty, in fact, under the professional ethics of the medical profession, and that is the duty to the patient. A lawyer has a balancing act, 
they've got to ensure that the proper administration of justice is carried out, but at the same time act in the best interests of their client. They can never uh, confuse the two. And unlike some lawyers <laughs> in some countries, we're pretty clear that the primary obligation of the lawyer is to the administration of justice and the, and the lawyer the duty to the client comes behind that after that. So in the case of former 3838, this criminal barrister, it appears as if she at some point, at least this is the case at the moment based upon the reported statements about her motives. It appears that she <clears throat> had decided that she'd had enough of supporting people whom she thought were guilty of various crimes and she wanted to assist the police. But in making that decision, she started down this slippery road towards um, completely forgetting about the fact that the administration of justice at the end of the day would be profoundly damaged if her role ever came out. And that's exactly what's happened. So clients won't necessarily trust lawyers, especially in criminal areas. Um, they'd be entitled to be, are entitled to be suspicious about their lawyers' motives from now on, at least until a royal commission gets into the bottom of it all. Um, police won't be trusted uh, because there'll be a view that police are prepared to do anything to get a conviction, including subvert the ethics of other professions, if they can. And um, until now, I guess you could say that the judges were also at risk of not being trusted. Now, fortunately, the High Court has said, finally <laughs> and openly, that the behaviour of both the lawyer and the police was atrocious. And... Uh, it can on no basis be justified. And because the judges have finally said that, all seven judges of the High Court in a, in a unanimous judgment reached this conclusion. There isn't, I think, any doubt about what the judges think, and thank God for that, because if they were of the view that this particular piece of breach of um, standards was to, be, uh, was to be kept under wraps, then we'd be entitled to say that the highest court in the land also didn't understand the importance of the administration of justice. But they, they've not done that. Thankfully for all of us, they've said it was a crap situation and it needs to come out. And, of course, their decision means major inquiries. And uh, I think the Premier has done the right thing. I think everyone thinks the Premier has done the right thing to call this Royal Commission. And you raised... So many interesting points there, and I want to go back to one of them. You spoke about um, a lawyer's role in balancing lots of different yeah. interests, so to the yeah. court client. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so in the Lawyer X's letter, they talk about um, what they felt were um, solicitors and people that were not acting in the best interests of their clients. Yeah. Um, and so the best interests of the client is a really interesting idea, and it's quite complicated. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why, what is, a, what is the best interest of the client concept and how, where did this lawyer go wrong in sort of understanding that, if they did? Sure. Well, to give a hypothetical example, <clears throat> you've got a client perhaps charged with an armed robbery. Now, that's a serious offence. Um, 
and it carries inevitably some term of imprisonment um, in most cases. <clears throat> Not all of them, but most cases. Now, the uh, client says to you, okay, I'm... Uh, I may or may not be guilty of this offence. I've had uh, a considerably um, vivid career. I've done a few bad things in my time, but I, I really didn't do this particular armed robbery. They're, the police are trying to fit me up for this. They're trying to find someone who's uh, who's got a record and therefore they think will uh, roll over and plead guilty to this matter. But I'm not going to plead guilty because I'm not guilty. I didn't do it. I'm not sure who did do it, but I didn't do it. So the lawyer um, in that situation has to assess what the best interests of the client are. They first look at the brief of evidence which the prosecution prepares and which must be made available to the lawyer. And they decide if that evidence is capable of supporting a conviction. In other words, is it compelling enough to uh, require real caution about pleading not guilty. Because there is a principle that says that if you plead not guilty to an offence where a guilty plea was more probably the appropriate plea and where the evidence is very compelling that you personally have committed this crime, then you're going to get a longer sentence than you would if you pleaded guilty at an early stage of the trial. So the best interest of the client in this situation require the lawyer to really try and weigh up what are the chances of a not guilty plea being rejected and the jury convicting the defendant uh, and exposing the client to a higher penalty, a higher term of imprisonment than would otherwise be the case if they pleaded guilty at an early point. Does that make sense so far? Yes, it does. Okay, so... The best interest of the client might be involved saying to the, uh, the the particular client, right, I know you believe you've pleaded not guilty, um, but the evidence is compelling and you risk a much higher sentence than you would be if you pleaded guilty now. The client's outraged, but because they trust the lawyer, because they respect the lawyer's uh, experience and, in, and reputation, they decide to go along with that and plead guilty. Um, and, I mean, you can see where I'm going with this. If mm. if all of that's um, called into doubt because the lawyer, in fact, can't be trusted, if they're really what the Americans called, uh, call a snitch, if they're a snitch, if they're, in fact, a, an informer, the whole calculation about the best interests of the client gets chucked out and... The client, of course, doesn't want to trust anyone. So um, a, an honourable lawyer, leaving aside that scenario, must always work out whether in a case like that it's going to better serve the client's interests to plead guilty and uh, get a shorter period of time in jail than would otherwise be the case. Mm. Now, it's still... Why it's a balancing act, <laughs> it's not easily resolved at all, is that... Uh, clients who are, and there are clients, can I say, who are genuinely not guilty. It's not the case that the police charge uh, someone because they've actually done it. They make mistakes, and, of course, that's obvious from 
the events of the last week, but they make genuine mistakes as well and can charge people who are not guilty. And if a client is determined to plead not guilty because they say to you, I am not guilty and you will represent me on that basis, then there's another rule of professional conduct which says that the lawyer must act on the instructions of the client, which means do what they say and plead not guilty in a case like this. In that situation, the lawyer who uh, is behaving honourably and who is not a snitch, in other words, is straight up, uh, is probably faced with pointing out to the client that, okay, you say you're not guilty, but the evidence against you presented by the police is compelling. We think, I think, that you will be convicted if you plead not guilty and you'll still get a longer sentence. And the client says, I don't care, I am not guilty, you proceed on that basis. The lawyer then probably has to proceed on that basis. Now, again, all of that falls over and is worthless as an argument if the so-called compelling evidence presented by the police is based on an informer or and if that informer is the lawyer. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with the police having an informer, and that happens all the time. What's different about this case is that the informer happened to be the lawyer representing the very people who were being charged. Mm. So informers are are an acceptable approach, but um, not if the lawyer's the informer. And I I wanted to also ask you a question which I'm sure that you've um, grappled with a lot in your research as well and and having done sort of lawyers' ethics courses myself is something that always is a point of discussion um, for students, which is... So the the lawyer in this case spoke about the need or their feeling of doing something altruistic um, and so doing what they thought was right under the circumstances. Yeah. And... So the threshold for disclosure for lawyers is very high. It's an imminent risk of danger. I think I should know that. I should know that off by heart. But, um, but in in this case where the lawyer feels that they're doing the right thing in disclosing, what in your research or in your experience where lawyers start to feel maybe complicit in their clients' dealings and feel that they need to speak out, is that a common thing or something that lawyers grapple with a lot? That's a very good question. Uh, Enough lawyers grapple with it for the issue to be a perennial struggle for them. Um, Successful, wise, reputable criminal lawyers decide that the way to manage it is to be very scrupulous about the distance they keep between themselves and their client, which means no socialising. Meetings in offices that are the lawyers' offices are speaking to the clients in a way where, in in surroundings where uh, they can't be misinterpreted as to what the nature of the conversation is. So, apart from not socialising, not not having meetings at racetracks or in bars and things like that, um, those sort of Practical sort of separation steps allow the reputable criminal lawyer to uh, make it clear to the client, subtly make it clear to the client that they're not going to be uh, caught.
brought up in the criminal proceeding if there is a criminal proceeding. So, you know, this case raises so many um, red flags. It is truly, it's truly amazing. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the altruism motive that you've spoken of, and which does seem to have been reported quite a lot, is understandable at one level, but but it's also not all that credible at another level because anyone who goes to law school and who goes through a legal ethics teaching learns exactly what you've just referred to about the need to uh, show judgment about the nature of your relationship with your client. I... And all of this will be subject to a lot of scrutiny over the next 12 months, obviously, in the, in the Commission. But it does seem to me equally arguable that her decision to start informing because she was unhappy with the activities of her clients was an example of a profound lack of judgment because it totally relies on Apart from apart from being quite unfair to her clients, can I say, quite unfair to them because they're not guilty until the court finds them not guilty. Um, not until the court finds them guilty. Uh, apart from being unfair, it, it absolutely depends upon the whole arrangement being secret forever, at least until everyone involved is dead. And that uh, that's very unlikely. <laughs> So there's a lack of judgment on her part. <clears throat> the altruism plea may be accurate, but it's so short-sighted and so unlikely to be effective in the long term that I don't know that it's all that credible. We'll see. Yes. Thank you so much. We're just out of time, so thank you so much for coming on today. We've been speaking with Professor Adrian Evans from Monash University, um, a scholar in lawyers' ethics. So thank you for coming on this morning, Adrian. Okay, no worries. Have fun. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that is native to South America and has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. The Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Please visit www.serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. El Dorado, the story of Scudiez, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control over the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. Come along to this free screening on Thursday the 6th of December at the Greek Centre, 168 Lonsdale Street, City. To book your free ticket, search Try Booking and El Dorado or go to the Greek Resistance Bulletin Facebook page. A 3CR supporter.
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It's 10 to 8 right now, just before we were chatting with uh, Adrian Evans from Monash um, about the... Uh, how do we just... About the um, lawyer that informed to Victoria Police about their clients during the gangland war. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, like I sort of um, mentioned before the interview as well, you know, that was a really, like, a really interesting chat about um, approaching what's been going on from the perspective of uh, lawyers' ethics and the breach in a lawyer's duty to clients and to the administration of quote-unquote justice. Um, (laughs) But it's also really interesting and really vital to also consider this, what's been going on um, in relation to police accountability as well. And, you know, in the High Court finding that was handed down on Monday, um, the the judge described the actions of Victoria Police, I believe, as reprehensible. Um, And so it really... You know, it shows that there is absolutely the need for really strong police accountability mechanisms in Victoria. You know, and in September this year, um, the Victorian Parliament published that joint parliamentary report, um, which was the result of a two-year inquiry into the investigation and oversight of mm. police misconduct and corruption. And that report found that there were serious, you know, problems with the existing um, internal model of um, investigation, whereby police are investigating police. And so... Um, you know, lawyers and advocates from around the state, while really welcoming, you know, the proposed Royal Commission um, into police misconduct that Andrews announced very shortly after this story broke on Monday, um, it's really essential that the government also um, immediately establish uh, independent police corruption and misconduct division within IBAC, um, which is the... I always forget what it stands for exactly. The Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission. Bingo. (laughs) can't believe I remembered that at this time of the morning. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the police are investigating police. Yes. um, And there is an independent investigatory body um, ASAP. Exactly. And I think that also this speaks to the... um, the the kind of culture in the police force that so we're I mean speaking about lawyers ethics yes like this is incredibly shocking and particularly from a, like a lawyer's perspective I think we've all been really shocked that anybody could do this but I also think when you're looking at the kind of um, huge apparatus and structure that is Victoria Police and how at so many different levels there was just um, an understanding that this was okay that. In some, there should have been, it should have reached some level at some point where someone in charge said, "What are we doing? This is, this is as the court said, reprehensible." Um, and so, kind of contextualising the, also the pressure that maybe that lawyer started off with the good intention of um, acting, as they said, with an altruistic point, but that once potentially they became embedded in the, in that kind of informant police structure that it was actually maybe really hard to get out of and there was a responsibility from police to um, see that the kind of power was held by the Victoria Police and not by the informant and that you know the the huge power imbalance that is anybody when dealing with Victoria Police or any police force so yes I agree we do need an independent structure to be looking at police procedures Mm. One other sort of headline that I wanted to share with um, listeners this morning is in relation to um, the bill that Karen Phelps attempted, the independent MP Karen Phelps attempted to put forward earlier this week um, in relation to legislating faster medical treatment for refugees and, um, and asylum seekers on Manus Island and Nauru, which I thought was particularly useful to, or it would be good to just have a quick chat about um, before we launch into our um, discussion with Dr Christine 
um, Rufina from Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctor Without Borders, um, soon. Because yesterday afternoon there was um, some further developments um, whereby essentially, you know, the government was exposed to quite a humiliating defeat from a multi-party um, alliance um, whereby the Labor, Greens and Crossbench came together um, to push for... Uh, yeah, to push for this issue that has been called for by, by Karen Phelps, by the Australian Medical Association, Association, by many others, um, to enable, um, yeah, essentially faster movement, um, if faster transfer of folks on, um, Nauru and Manus, if, uh, doctors say that's needed. So Karen Phelps initially tried to put, get the bill through on, um, Monday, however, this new, tactic, I guess, essentially of rather inserting um, an amendment into the existing um, uh, Migration Act, I believe is what's going on, um, requires a slightly lower threshold to actually get that passed. So it's looking very likely that it will pa- um, pass today on the final sitting day of Parliament. But I guess the things that I just wanted to flag, because I was listening to um, I was listening to Iron Breakfast yesterday where uh, they were interviewing uh, Deputy Labor Leader Tanya Plibersek um, about this, and you know, she was sort of saying that ultimately there should be ministerial oversight um, for getting people off um, Nauru and Manus, you know, under the name of so-called democracy, and that you know it would be an extra. She quote, she was like, it, was, it would be an extraordinary thing for ministers to say no in the face of two doctors' advice. Um, whereas you know, Karen Phelps had been pushing for that the doctors' advice should be what determines whether someone um, is brought to Australia or not, rather than needing ministerial approval. And I just think that you know. It, it's quite terrifying in this context, in this day and age, to be relying on ministerial oversight for those sorts of decisions um, when we've seen the sorts of decisions that, um, you know, Peter Dutton and others have been making, which totally fly in the face of um, all medical advice whatsoever. But more to the point, I also think, before we jump into this conversation with um, Christine, it's just really important to ground it in what has been being said for a very long time by asylum seekers and refugees themselves, um, which is, you know, definitely like um, have, for example, Bruce Bachani and others have absolutely been calling to back the bill. You can find out more about this by looking on Twitter under hashtag back the bill. Um, but more importantly, that we need to get all refugees and asylum seekers um, out of these offshore immigration mm-hmm. prisons ASAP. So, for example, um, Ramesh Fernandez, who's um, one of the co-founders of RISE, on Twitter on um, November 28th, you know, he called for, um, quote, we need to evacuate all refugees who are held hostage in offshore detention centres, regardless of their health conditions. There are enough medical evidence in the past and present that detention centres can make refugees permanently ill, both physically and psychologically, which is exactly what we're going to be talking um, with Christine about in a moment, about how... Um, the conditions that the government imposes upon people who are locked up in offshore prisons um, creates you know, extreme um, mental poor health and places people at risk of um, extreme harm. But I also just... Sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but there's just so much to talk about. Um, but I also wanted to, yeah, mention that uh, or I quote from an article that Baruz Bachani, who's a really you know, incredible um, Kurdish journalist who's been locked up on Manus for five years that I'm sure a lot of listeners would know about. He wrote an article um, in The Guardian again on the 28th of November where he said, um, you know, today, quote, today the hospital on Manus Island looks more like a ruin about to crumble. At the, at the hospital, the local workers are extremely kind and show empathy with the refugees. However, hierarchies of power make it impossible for Manusians or anyone else to provide adequate care. 
And he also wrote on Twitter um, a few days later, on the 2nd of December, that since yesterday, two people attempted suicide on Manus Island while we were waiting for a new bill in the Parliament to take ill refugees off the island and bring them to Australia. The situation on Manus has become out of control over the past month. And so just to flag that, you know, we can't be selective with where we direct our um, political attention. You know, it's, it's absolutely vital to support this bill um, to get, uh, you know, those who need medical care off Nauru ASAP. We need to be getting all refugees and asylum seekers off Nauru and all refugees and asylum seekers off Manus. Um, and also we need to be looking at how the broader context of, you know, of colonialism um, and colonial exploitation and domination by Australia creates these structures whereby there isn't any local capacity um, to actually, you know, to create mental health support either, you know, for locals or for refugees and asylum seekers. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. Yeah, <laughs> um, but now we might just jump into a quick announcement and then we'll get back in on this topic with um, Dr. Christine Ruffinow in just a moment. You're listening to 3CR Radio. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It's right on 8 o'clock. So now we're going to be um, chatting with uh, Dr. Christine Ruffiner, who's a clinical psychologist who worked on Nauru with Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. And... MSF um, provided mental health care on the Pacific Islands um, of Nauru for 11 months um, before being forced to leave and earlier this week released a report um, which analyses some of their medical data from Nauru demonstrating extreme mental health suffering on the island. Before we jump into this chat with Christine, I just want to flag that we will be talking about um, suicide and other mental health issues, so feel free to tune out um, for the next 15 minutes and come back with us um, later in the show. But Good morning, Christine. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. My pleasure. I was wondering if we could jump right in um, and begin with a bit of an overview of this incredibly powerful um, report that was released earlier this week by Doctors Without Borders. Yes. So our report really highlights the level of suffering that we've previously reported on, putting some of the statistics behind the stories. Uh, What we're most concerned about is that what we've determined in the report is that the level of suffering on Nauru is indeed severe. It's uh, comparable or worse to projects where we treat victims of torture and sexual violence. And on top of that, we found that our interventions were not helpful, as we'd hoped, in alleviating the symptoms of the asylum seekers and refugees. And we can compare that to the work that we did with the local population, where we found that more than half improved under our care. 
Uh, with the asylum seekers and refugees, though, only 11% showed improvement and 69% continued to deteriorate. And what that tells us is that it's not a solution that can be fixed therapeutically. It's the conditions under which asylum seekers and refugees are kept on Nauru that is contributing to their mental health, uh, that is worsening their symptoms and making it an impossible place for recovery. Absolutely. Um, and firstly, can I just ask, how did, so how, because, how, you know, mental health, when we all experience mental health, um, you know, across our lives, how do you actually get data around that? How do you assess the scale of this mental health crisis in Nauru? Mm-hmm. The primary scale that we use to assess symptom severity and the impact mm-hmm. of mental health conditions on people's lives is the global, uh, global assessment of functioning. And this is a scale used throughout the world, has been used for quite some time to assess how somebody's functioning is impacted by their symptoms. So how is somebody able to go to school? Are they able to work? Are they able to engage in social relationships and participate in their family? And the more affected they are, the lower their score is on a scale of zero to 100. Uh, So somewhere in the 70 to 100 range is healthy functioning. That suggests you might have some stress going on, but you're able to manage it with some minimal impact on your functioning. Uh, the asylum seekers and refugees and the local Nauruans, upon first assessment, showed GAF scores in the 35 to 40 range, suggesting that there was major impact in their functioning in many areas of their functioning due to their psychological condition. And did did those GAF scores um, of the refugee and asylum folk that you were working with remain consistent across the period that you were um, providing mental health care on Nauru? We saw GAF scores shift in time, and we saw some really interesting uh, trends develop. Most interesting was when we we looked at GAF scores at a a certain period of time. In April, May, and June was a significant period in Nauru because a couple of of significant events happened. Most significant was uh, that the U.S. resettlement deal that has been offered for asylum seekers and refugees on Nauru handed down a large number of refusals, of declines, to the population, mostly to Iranians. And that was, uh, at the time, a lot of our patients. And we saw a a significant decline in their GAF scores specifically at that time. And when we compared that to the Nauruan population, we didn't see the same decline. So what that tells us is that significant events like this, negative impacts that impact uh, a few members of the community or several members of the community has the ability to impact the entire community, but specific to the asylum seekers and refugees, because we did not see that same decline among the Nauruan population who are not affected by the resettlement deal. Mm. And I feel like what that also really shows is, you know, that these these political sort of like bargaining chips, like the US resettlement deal or also, you know, the proposed deal with New Zealand, um, that they they need to be, it's so vital to remember that these have absolutely real and devastating impacts on people's lives and people's mental health, um, you know, whether they come through or not. Um, but, it, you know, the prospect of them and then rejection from them is is life-threatening, actually. Absolutely. Yes. Asylum seekers and refugees came to seek safety in Australia and instead were... were were taken by sea and forced to come to this island and and now have been there for five years. So they already came as a very vulnerable population. 75% of them had experienced trauma prior to their arrival on Nauru. And then they come to a situation where their hopes are are, are maybe risen or maybe are, are maintained, and then they're dashed systematically by the system, which is opaque, unpredictable, and unjust. 
And under these conditions, what we found is that people's mental health will just not improve. People are destined almost to become sick uh, and for that illness to remain. And when people are very psychologically ill, you see things like suicide attempts, um, suicidal ideation and self-harm as sort of a natural progression uh, under those conditions. And that's very concerning indeed because the refugees and asylum seekers I worked with, they didn't want to die. They just saw this as the only escape from their suffering. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned then that the majority of refugee and asylum seeker um, people on Nauru and Manus had you know, experienced uh, incredibly difficult and uh, devastating experiences and trauma prior to coming um, prior being locked, to being locked up in these offshore prisons. But in your report, you also detail that there are many, um, many people also experience harm while on, while in these offshore prisons, um, you know, that are run by the Australian government as well. Would you be able to speak to that? I believe it was, yeah, what, how, how many, um, what does your report, I guess, um, talk about in terms of particularly harm that is alleged at the hands of, um, immigration officials and others? Mm-hmm. 23% of our asylum seekers and refugees reported experiencing violence on Nauru, and these patients were subsequently more likely to require psychiatric hospitalization, which was uh, very limited on the island. There were a few beds sort of uh, almost meeting the criteria of psychiatric inpatient, but, but not really, and these beds were almost always full. So you have people in dire need who are on, whose, whose needs are not being met. Um, a lot of the incidents we heard about were, were from the were from the past. You know, people have been there five years, and we only mm-hmm. spent the last year there. But they talked about um, bullying in the schools. They talked about being targeted for um, aggression, sometimes by the local population, sometimes within their community as well, and also by Australian border force and security. Uh, this population was held under under detention behind bars for two years. Um, and so that creates sociologically a really interesting disparity where, where the people automatically sort of probably see them as prisoners and somehow deserving tr- the treatment that they do have. And we know from the psychological literature that that creates this disparity, that this creates this um, differences in the level of, of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it creates levels in... In, in how someone is, is treated. Someone is seen as less than because they're behind a fence and someone is seen as, as feels empowered because they're holding uh, a baton or some sort of flashlight or, or security item. And so the population has really been made to feel that they're less than, that they're not human, that they don't count. And that also has significantly impacted their mental health. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important point that, you know, these these systems are designed to be dehumanising, um, yeah. to to legitimise, you know, their continuation. And as you were saying before, though, that these systems make people sick. You know, people weren't. It's not that people were just um, sick prior to coming, but actually that these these systems create and perpetuate mental ill health. Um, yeah, and risk to life, essentially. Absolutely, and, and we we've seen this. This has been documented in the scientific literature for 20 mm-hmm. years. And a lot of the research on the impact of detention on asylum seekers and refugees has been done here in Australia. Uh, so from, from our indication, the policymakers are, are well aware that these situations do happen. Uh, they're very predictable, that people are, are vulnerable when they come into these settings, and then the conditions under, that, are, that are typically unjust, 
that are indefinite, uh, where people lose their sense of hope and lose control over their, over their own, over their current situation and over the future, uh, has a very negative impact. With the longer they're under these conditions, the more serious conditions that develop. Absolutely. Um, so at the moment we're, we're chatting with Dr. Christine Rufner from um, Doctors Without Borders about the indefinite despair report that was released on Monday. And as you say, Christine, you know, while the report is so um, powerful and shocking, none of it should come as a surprise. This has all been documented for a very long time. And also those who've been imprisoned on Nauru and Manus and in um you know, offshore and onshore detention centres around the world has all, have also been saying this for a very long time, um, that their mental health has been um, compromised and harmed by being held, um, yeah, by being held on Nauru and Manus for, for so long with so little certainty about what the future holds. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, about the, the impacts of... Um, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, being forced to cease um, service delivery within 24 hours. Um, because a couple of months ago we spoke with um, Dr Beth O'Connor um, about this, but I was just wondering from your perspective as well and in light of the report, um, what were the impacts on uh, the mental health of the folks you're working with of that um, you having to cease service provision? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I continue to hear from, from some of our former patients and, and what we heard in in the days and weeks after our departure is that the, the rates of self-harm and suicide attempts on the island did increase. This is what we heard from reports um, that the refugee processing center where some patients are treated on an outpatient basis was, was, was full, completely full, and people were having a lot of difficulty getting appointments. So even now I hear reports that it takes three to four weeks for our patients to try to get mental health follow-up. Uh, we had 208 patients actively under our care when we were forcibly removed. And so those patients have to be absorbed into a, into a system that already isn't meeting their needs. So you have the, the asylum seekers and refugees and the Nauruans that, that were unsure about a lot of their outcomes. But from the information we do here is that people are doing worse. In addition, uh, it's been a very good thing that all the children and their families, most of the children and their families have been removed uh, since our departure. Uh, the impact that has on the people left behind is sort of a mixed feeling. Of course, they're very happy to see children leaving and family leaving, and, 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 and anyone leaving is always a, a brings some amount of, of happiness to the community because they're happy to know some people are leaving. But it also reminds people that I'm still here. Mm -hmm. And for adults who are childless, some of whom have, have chosen to be childless because they didn't want to raise children under those circumstances, they feel they're being punished and, and really forgotten about. And now their fear of being left behind has, has even increased. And with that fear, with that hopelessness, as established in our data, comes more severe mental health symptoms. Yeah. And one thing that I really appreciated um, about the indefinite, indefinite Despair report was that it addressed, if briefly, you know, the need to look at the, the context of, um, of Australian colonization and exploitation um, of Nauru and of the, the region generally and that, you know, the lack of investment into health and education um, on Nauru, like other Pacific Islands, um, leads to then this situation that you were describing just then where there is like really limited um, capacity to be supporting, um, to, you know, whether that's psychiatric facilities or other mental health care facilities on the island. 
um, and so I wanted to ask, I guess, about, um, yeah, MSF's views around both engaging with that context of, um, of Australian, you know, historical domination in the region, um, but also around local capacity building when it comes to mental health. Mm-hmm. Yes, we had we had a health promoter in the in the project at all times, whose primary objective was to work on, on increasing some of the capacity of the local population and, and for, for all people on Nauru. We had a one-door-for-all policy, so we really treated all of our patients equally regardless of how they came to us. Uh, the health promoter ran into a lot of difficulties because of the high levels of stigmatization against mental health. And, and we have stigma everywhere. Certainly in, in my own country, I'm sure in Australia, uh, people with mental illness are, are stigmatized. People, people don't fully understand what these disorders mean or how they develop. Uh, and, and there's a lot of blaming the person for developing these kinds of symptoms. And, and certainly we see that in, in places where there's less formal education. So one of our tasks is to try to decrease the stigma around mental health, and we, we actually we were we left the island on World Mental Health Day, ironically enough, uh, and we had organized activities within the community to help promote mental health, to promote to promote mental wellness, and these activities were very slow going. So it would have taken a lot more time to really make sure that the community is formed, so that people don't blame don't blame patients for their conditions. Uh, when you have when you have people blaming patients for their mental health conditions, you, the stigmatization increases this disparity in how people are seen. Yes. So people who are sick are seen as less than, are seen as weak, and people who are weak are then more, therefore more targets for bullying or for physical or verbal aggression. And Christine, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to finish up by going back to a point that you raised earlier about there being no therapeutic solution um, to the mental health crisis on, on Nauru. Um, and I wanted to finish by asking you, what is... Um, the Doctors Without Borders calling for um, in this report? Our call is for an immediate evacuation of all asylum seekers and refugees to a place where they can have permanent resettlement, removing these conditions of uncertainty and hopelessness, where they have access to comprehensive mental health services and can be assured reunion with their families. We know that family separation has a devastating impact on people's mental health and they need to be in conditions where they can predict their future, where they can engage in meaningful activities during the day and have purpose in their life again. We've determined that that is not possible for the vast majority of asylum seekers and refugees on Nauru, and we call for their immediate evacuation. Thank you so much, Christine, for talking with us this morning. Um, if any listeners would like, um, if, if this raised any issues for anyone, I do encourage you to call Lifeline on 131114. We've just been chatting with Dr Christine Rufner about the report Indefinite Despair around um, the mental health crisis on Nauru. I really encourage listeners to get online and check it out. Thank you very much. you got to remember, Nainox a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. 
Nadoc means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. Nadoc means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoc! Get lost in science. Tune in to 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd. You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It's almost 20 past eight. Um, we're going to jump straight into another chat um, with Jennifer Nixon, um, who's the Assistant Manager of First Nations Media Australia, the national peak body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media workers. Jennifer belongs to the Amnateri, Kakatiya and Aliwara clans and is um, local to Alice Springs, where the First Nations Media Australia headquarters is based. And we're so lucky to be chatting with you this morning, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Em. Thanks for um, inviting me on. Not at all. I was wondering, could you start by giving us a brief overview about the Converge conference that was happening um, week before last? Yeah, in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, we had um, a two-day actual conference and we got welcomed. That was the first day on the Friday and we got welcomed there by Gadigal um, Information Services, the home of Koori Radio. They did a welcome to country for all of, all of us and all our delegates on top of their... Um, Redfern Studios, they've got a rooftop. And then um, our conference kicked off then on Thursday, the 22nd and Friday, the 23rd of November. And we had about 165 or more delegates in attendance and they were representing probably about 58 um, organisations. Yeah, amazing. Um, I was following, you know, a lot of the... things that were coming out of the conference on social media and it looked really incredible. Um, yeah. And the theme of this year's conference um, was Our Media Matters. Could you give, um, just explain, yeah. is that right? Yeah, well, it's been a theme of um, our three conferences. Ah, wonderful. Our third one, our first one kicked off in Alice Springs and then Brisbane in March last this year and then now in Sydney. So Our Media Matters is just, it's just, um, it's about every, it's, we're wanting to capture everyone's perspective on why Our Media Matters. So we try to grab a story with that as well. So there's, um, so it branches off in every area. So it could matter because it educates everyone. Uh, it, matter, it matters because it keeps our culture strong. Um, there are a lot of reasons why our media matters, but it's important for us to grow that and to share that. And so that's what we collect at our conferences as well, and we just sustain that and we grow it, and then we get different stories as well to add on to it. So it's been growing. Like I said, this is the third conference that our mm. media matters has been growing from. Yeah, wonderful. That's great to know. Um, and what about what does that um, this theme of our media matters um, mean to you personally, or how does that resonate with you? Um, well, it does. It, it resonates with me in because it's so um, inclusive of everything. As being Indigenous people that work in media, 
and just in Indigenous people or First Nations community people in, in general. So it resonates in me in a lot with me in a lot of ways, like educating. Um, it educates also. It um, keeps our culture alive. So um, there's not one area, and I think that's probably with everyone. But it's good to get everyone's story out there. So then we, I would say we would all resonate with everything that everyone's saying. Mm. And I believe that there was um, an inaugural um, awards night um, at the end of the conference that was, I mean, it looked like a pretty spectacular event with um, Baker Boy and Alice Skye and others performing. Um, yeah, Marlene Cummins and her group. Yeah, so rad. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, would you, yeah, what was the significance of holding this um, very first awards night? And also, were there any highlights that you'd care to share with us? Yeah, so it was quite significant for us because, like you said, it was the inaugural First Nations Media Awards and we wanted it to be a a big um, event and um, we wanted to cover, like, we had about 16 awards going off that night. We had two quite significant awards, which was the Lifetime Achievement Award and also the um, Outstanding Contributor Award. So Dot West won the um, Lifetime Achievement Award. She's currently the chair of First Nations Media. And also Vince Coltard from Amiwara, he won the Outstanding Contributor Award. But we had awards for, um, like I said, there were 16 awards, and it was just significant for us to have an actual National Indigenous or National First Nations Media Awards at a, at this event because I think we haven't had any awards recognise Indigenous uh, media workers before. So it was quite a it was quite a good event to have it at, and also it was quite a successful night because we also added on to that we had the Indigituba launch. So that's where we had all um, Baker Boy and all the bands playing as well. So it sort of all together as such a significant event. And yeah. it was a really, really good night. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. And on that note, I want to ask you, what, what is Indigitube? I mentioned it earlier in the show and my co-presenter was very intrigued. Um, yeah, would you yeah. be able to share with us a bit about, um, yeah, what Indigitube is? Yeah, so Indigitube, it's a, it's a platform Everyone like to sh- it's a media platform, so it's for First Nations people, and it's like preserving our language and culture, and it's also to sustain, and also it's for future generations. So, Indigitube, the Indigitube platform is actually a member services for our members that become members of First Nations media, and um, on that you can store like videos, um, music, um, language, and then everything that we're doing will go on to Indigitube as well. And also we've got an app, or you've got, we've got an app for it, so you can have it on your phone, Android or iPhone. And then so you can listen to, once an organisation becomes a member, then they can drop their radio station on there. So you can, I can listen to Karma here in Melbourne, because I'm in Melbourne at the moment, mm-hmm. and I can listen to PRW or any others I want to listen to. So I've got the app on my phone. So you can listen to the phone, um, listen to the, all the radio stations as well as look at look at everything else on the app on your phone. Yeah, I was having a bit of a click around um, on Indigitube last night, and yeah. I found that there are even some, um, you know, there are some recordings from 3CR Community Radio on there. You know, for yeah. example, like Black Gold, um, which uh, Kerry Lee put together. Uh, Kerry Lee Harding, you know, who's a who's a very yeah. dear 3CR presenter, um, which was looking at you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander contributions to radio here in Nam um, over four decades. Yeah. So it's such an incredible resource and archive, as well as as you say, obviously like a a living a living document and archive moving forwards as well. Yeah, exactly. That won't ever age. Yeah. And then everyone it will sustain. So everyone can access it and everyone can put everything on it, which is what it's for. It's for preserving language and culture mm-hmm. for, for here and now and for future generations. So I think it's such a great, great um member service that we've got. Yeah, it's so it's really incredible. Um 
and how did it how did Intertube come about? Is it is it the result of um you know any yeah any particular projects or has it been in the works for a long time? Because um, obviously it's building on you know even though it's it's new it's being launched now it's building on a lot of existing um work and conversations and energy and love and care um in documenting and creating space to um yeah to hold all these really incredible um resources moving forwards so could you share with us a bit yeah about where it came from and how it came about so in digitube came about it's been a few. It's been in the making for a lot of years. It hasn't just suddenly appeared. And um, we've had other people working on it prior to um, the current project manager, who's Jaja there. Um, it came about because there was a there was a need for this to be in the sector and to be available for First Nations media people. So the development of it has been happening for a while. Yeah, and as you say, there is such a strong need for. Um, for this type of platform and sort of, um, I guess, digital custodianship, um, it's been called. But just, we're running out of time, so I was wanting to wrap up. How can people um, find out more about the next Converge conference, about First Nations media generally, and also about Indigitube? Yeah, excuse me, just for First Nations media, just in general, just go onto our website or follow us through social media because it's pretty active at the moment, and it always has been. And also just um, see what we're doing, and once we decide on the next Converger. It'll be up on our website. Um, if you're an organisation or um, First Nations media person working in media, um, just go onto our website and flick an email through and just say you want to become a member so then you don't miss out on anything because then we'll put you on our idioms and then you'll have access to everything that's going on and you'll have a regular contact. But otherwise, just look on our um, website and follow us on social media. Um, we put everything out, so everything's there for everyone to see what we're doing and what we're going to be doing. Yeah, and also I'd really encourage listeners to check out Intertube and to download the app on your phones as well. Definitely, um, yep. Thank you so much, Jenny, um, for speaking with us this morning. Have a great day. Okay, then. Thanks a lot for that. You're tuned into 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We've got one minute left on the show. Um, just then, I was speaking with Jennifer Nixon, Assistant Manager of First Nations Media Australia, about the Converge Festival um, and the really incredible Indigitube that I encourage listeners to check out. Before that, we spoke with Dr Christine Ruffiner from um, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, about the indefinite despair report that was released on Monday um, documenting or looking at their da- medical data from Nauru, which is yeah, showing, you know, without doubt, the extreme mental health suffering on the island that has been created by those structures of um, offshore detention and imprisonment. And earlier in the show, we spoke with... We spoke with Professor Adrian Evans uh, about the um, about Informer 3838 and uh, lawyers' ethics and duties to both client and court um, under the current case that's in the media at the moment. And we've also been talking about um, you know, the really important campaign that RISE is doing um, to 
uh, Save Hakeem. So I'd encourage people to get on um, Twitter to have a look at that and also um, to hashtag back the bill as well. But we're out of time. So thank you, listeners, for listening in today. Remember to tune in tomorrow to Green Left Weekly Breakfast. We'll be back next week. But up next is Lost in Science. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.